Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Okay, it is 7.30. Welcome to the regular Monday night class at Against the Stream. Uh, Anybody who's new joining us for the first time tonight, especially welcome to you. Welcome back, everyone else. Sangha, good to see everybody. I am uh, not at Against the Stream tonight. I'm at home in my bedroom, uh, sheltering in place. Um, And uh, it's a good place. It's where I meditate more often than not. So happy to... um, to be here with everyone tonight. And um, mostly feeling like just jumping into the meditation and then we'll have some talk and discussion after we meditate together. So find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed, adjust your posture, release any unnecessary tension in your posture. And when you're ready, allow your eyes to be gently closed. Establishing an attitude of friendliness, of kindness, of acceptance, accepting ourselves just as we are in this moment, physically, Emotionally. Bringing the intention of compassion of forgiveness to your mind, to your heart, to your body. And establishing mindfulness which is present time, non-judgmental, investigative awareness with this attitude of friendliness or kindness. Bring our full attention to the here and now into this body, heart, mind.
we experience thoughts and sensations. We experience hearing and seeing, smelling and tasting. Allowing everything else to recede to the background of awareness, bring full awareness, mindfulness to the breath. Breathing in, receive the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils. Breathing out, feel the sensations of the breath leaving the body. For a few minutes, give your full attention to the breath. And when something takes your attention away from the breath back into thinking or a sound, another sensation in the body, acknowledge that with kindness and gently return to the breath over and over, disengaging from thoughts about the past or future Reconnecting with the body sitting here, breathing. Some find it helpful to track the breath coming and going by noting in as you breathe in or out as you exhale. If you use that technique of mindfulness, noting, and when your attention is drawn away from the breath, also label that experience as thinking or hearing, seeing, or feeling, and then come back to the breath.
the breath itself can teach us so much. Pay close attention to the reality of impermanence with each breath. Pay close attention to the impersonal nature of the body breathing, how it breathes all by itself. And that our awareness is receiving it. The ideal inner perspective in meditation is unentangled participation. Receiving the breath without being identified as controlling it or manipulating it. Mindfulness is non reactive, it is non-judgmental. Just knowing each breath as it comes and goes, thoughts arising and passing in the background, sounds, other sensations. Mindfulness is unperturbed. Undisturbed. No matter how stirred up the heart emotions are, the mind states are. Come back to the breath over and over.
You can choose to keep the simple, narrow focus on the breath. Especially if you're new to practice, this is the foundational skill. Disengaging from the mind, breaking the addiction to planning. The Buddha's instructions become more and more inclusive of our whole being, inviting us to bring mindfulness to the whole body, not just the breath, head to toe, arms and legs, trunk, this physical sensory body. So much being felt, being experienced, so many sensations arising and passing in each moment in the body. What's happening in your fingertips, in your toes, your arms and legs, your head and face. Expanding and contracting of the chest with each breath. Including any emotional activity in the body. The belly, the heart, the jaw, the eyes. including the sense doors, sounds arising, passing, my voice coming and going. Perhaps some smell, taste, images. and choosing to turn towards the mind rather than ignore it, to include thoughts as part of the present time experience. Non-judgmental present time awareness of the thinking mind doing whatever it's doing in this moment, planning or remembering, craving or judging. fantasizing or despairing. Just thoughts arising and passing through the mind.
allowing the mind, body, heart, this human experience to reveal the reality of impermanence, the unreliable or unsatisfactory nature of all of the impermanent phenomena. And the impersonal, the mind has a mind of its own, the body just breathes, the heart just beats, the mind just thinks, not your fault, but also not our identity, not who we are. Some of the thoughts and sensations and emotions experienced as pleasant. Allow yourself to relax into enjoying the impermanent, pleasant phenomena of the mind, of the body. What feels good in this moment, if anything? Even if it's a fantasy, just acknowledge that's a pleasant fantasy. And also opening and identifying what feels unpleasant, perhaps the body after 
sitting still for 25 minutes starts to ache. Rather than ignoring our pain, we turn towards it. It becomes part of our practice, meeting the constantly changing sensations of discomfort with tolerance and mercy. Learning to be compassionate with our own pain. Spending the last couple of minutes letting go of effort. Returning to this core intention of friendliness, of kindness, of self-acceptance. Let go of trying and just relax into being. Just thoughts and sensations.
And when you're ready, allowing your eyes to be open. Taking a moment to stretch or readjust your posture if you like. Continue an attitude of friendliness, of mindfulness, and of uh, receiving what's happening as we move. Good to also reflect for a moment on what just happened as you tried to be present with your breath, your body. What did you learn about impermanence? Was there anything constant? You don't need to answer that question. <laughs> um, so the Buddha had a really, really radical proposal for humanity, for all of us. And that is that uh, all living beings have the power, the potential, the ability to free themselves from suffering through their own actions, our own efforts in this lifetime. No matter where you come from, what you've done, what you haven't done yet. <laughs> All living beings, even the worst of us, even the best of us, uh, regardless of regardless of the circumstances of our birth or our life experience so far, no matter how traumatized, no matter how uh, privileged. And so I wanna talk about, um, I wanna talk about this tonight and uh, especially um, reflect on uh, worthiness and um, I guess wor worthiness and ability are the two pieces that, that stick out in my mind around, um, you know, so there's this really radical proposal that says everyone has the ability. 
So that means all of us having this conversation tonight. And I'd imagine that a whole bunch of people's minds are like, yeah, I don't think I don't think I can do it. <laughs> I don't I don't think I have the ability to free myself from all forms of suffering in this life. Now, maybe before I go too far, I should define what I think the dude meant by freedom from suffering. Because so often we conflate and we think it's going to mean life is easy and pleasant all of the time because it's the lack of ease and the lack of pleasantness that makes me suffer, right? <laughs> so that's not what the, you know, that's not what the Buddha was talking about. He was talking about developing the skill, the ability to meet all of the difficulties that were going to continue to happen in our lives with compassion, with understanding, with forgiveness. Not the end of pain, not the end of difficulties, not the end of death and loss and <laughs> uh, drama, not a drama-free existence but a suffering-free relationship to all of the drama that our own minds create and the um, relationships in the world and politics and environmental devastation and the reality of, of the world that we live in, responding with compassion and forgiveness, the wise response, which also is non-clinging, that we can, in this lifetime, develop these skills, these wise responses. We can become non-reactive. All of our suffering is created out of reactivity, aversion to the unpleasant, judgment, resentment, anger, rage, frustration, rather than response. Is your, is your reaction ever non-attachment? <laughs> is your reaction ever compassionate? I'm super reactive, I'm fucking compassionate. <laughs> and so making this distinction between that reactivity, which almost always causes suffering and the wise response, which we develop the skills, the we have the power, we have the potential, we have the instructions, we have the map. This is how you end suffering. By accepting pain. By learning to care about pain. This is how you end suffering, by understanding that it's all impermanent and learning to meet impermanence with non-attachment. Now it's Simple to say, but this is fucking radical. So radical that the Buddha was like a little hesitant. He said, how many people are going to really take on this completely counter instinctual? Because our human instincts is to suffer. Human instincts is to be reactive. If you're suffering, normal. <laughs> totally ordinary. not suffering is a really radical 
proposal. Letting go rather than clinging. Caring rather than hating. Both internally and externally. So I hope that makes sense as, as what we're talking about, not the end of pain, just the end of suffering. <laughs> also not the complete avoidance of pleasure, learning to enjoy pleasure without clinging to it, not suffering about it. Take it or leave it <laughs> when it's appropriate, when it's available, but not suffering about it. So I want to reflect a little bit on, and I ask you to reflect on worthiness, because I feel like so many people come with these stories. We believe our minds about, uh, am I worthy of this? Can I really do this? Some of it's about, do I have the ability to do this? No, I want to say uh, everyone has the ability. And if you don't believe you have the ability, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> you are mistaken, my friend. You actually do have the ability. Whether you have the willingness, whether all you know, whether we have the willingness to apply the instructions and follow through long term with applying the instructions, that maybe is a, another issue. But the ability is here. Human beings have the ability to wake up, to see clearly, and learn to respond in this incredibly radical, counter-instinctual, subversive, rebellious way with kindness rather than anger and hatred. I had a couple of conversations uh, recently around um, and the kind of the two sides of the uh, coin of people that that come in to the Dharma and they feel a bit unworthy because they haven't suffered enough. I kind of feel like I've a lot of the comparing other people have suffered so much more than me. Uh, I've had such a privileged life. I don't know if I'm worthy of this whole awakening business, that kind of unworthiness, insecurity based on uh, privilege and position and, and comparing ourselves to people who have had less pleasant, less fortunate, less uh, easy incarnations. And we have an example as our founder of Buddhism, the Buddha, who had a very privileged upbringing. Had an upbringing of wealth and uh, luxury. And there can be a real blessing in um, being born uh, in that kind of situation because you know it doesn't work you know that the material world with any discernment at all, with any uh, insight at all, you know like, oh, this material stuff doesn't provide true contentment. 
that the craving that we experience is repetitive. And if you can just satisfy your cravings, it just takes other forms. The other uh, person that I was talking to this week um, was saying, you know, I've just done too much bad shit. My karma's too, it's, my karma's wrecked. <laughs> I just, you know, I've caused too much harm. I'm just kind of a piece of shit. How could I ever, how could I ever get free? Do I, how could I even deserve, be worthy of true happiness, true freedom after what I've done? So I was thinking of these two uh, questions about worthiness and, and, and then, you know, on one hand we have the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, the prince, born into wealth, born into luxury, born into abundance. Huge trust fund. <laughs> Never is gonna have to work a day in his life. Fine. He says, yeah, yeah, but I don't want that. I want freedom. I don't want to, uh, the kind of ease that I'm seeking isn't the kind of an easy uh, material existence. I'm looking for a spiritual liberation. I have everything and it doesn't make me happy. It doesn't, I'm not contented. There's something off. I'm attached, I'm averse, I'm self-centered, I'm suffering in the midst of this abundance. And he goes out to seek awakening and comes to awakening and says, hey, I did it. And in my realization, I realized anyone can do it. Everyone can do it. This is humanist psychology. Human beings have the ability to train their mind to meet pain with compassion, to train the mind and the heart to practice non-attachment. It's possible. The more you do that, the more you see how impersonal, how there's not a self to take so personal. The other side of the in the kind of traditional Buddhist example, is this character who shows up some years after the Buddha's awakening. The Buddha's early students, um, first he has his ascetics, his first five, uh, you know, who are like his friends. He, like, he, brings, he brings his old homies from the street along with him. And he, and he says, you know, here's what I figured out, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. And at first they're skeptical and they're like, I don't know, man, you kind of sold out. Because these are the ascetics who are torturing their bodies and, and, and the Buddha like started eating yogurt or something sinful. And they're like, dude, you fucking eat food. What do you know about spirituality? But he, you know, those are his first students. They, they come around, they see he's discovered mindfulness. He's found the middle path. He's developed compassion. He's developed wisdom. And 
then you know then then he has he meets a bunch of um wealthy kids uh i think that they're referred to as like um you know they're probably not kids they're probably adults but they were um like merchant class so like you know bit kind of working class business but you know like landowners people who are like buying stuff selling stuff uh you know cultivating um you know their own farms or whatever but you know so of some some means and those were like the second batch of students the ascetics and then and then he gets like th thousands of these fire worshipers and who knows what kind of you know the the fire worshiper students and this became the the bulk of the the early sangha for the buddha and these were like dreadlock weed smoking fire worshiping you know, like he goes to Burning Man and he just converts all of the stoners or to the fucking, you know, Steel Pulse concert or whatever. And it is like everybody just like becomes a Buddhist. He goes to Bob Marley himself and he says, here's the four noble truths. And uh, and then he just has all of these converts that, uh, you know, we're already spiritual, already on, you know, seeking spirituality, but down this dead end of, of uh, you know, devotion and and um kind of religious delusion and and intoxication and he and he teaches them uh this path of non-intoxication of embodiment of of awakening at some point and you know he becomes the buddha becomes famous and there's kings that are his students and there's you know he's wandering around india and he's saying you know if you're interested this is what i found anybody who's interested here's how we can get free from suffering and it's not about the dead end of religion and it's certainly not about the dead end of materialism it's this middle path these four truths this eightfold path and it becomes popular in in some circles and many uh, wealthy and powerful people become students and many uh, very poor and he's doing all of this radical work around uh, the caste system and saying, you know, this racist world that we live in, total delusion. The color of our skin has nothing to do with our worth of our place of our ability to awaken. Our gender has nothing to do with our worth of our ability to awaken. And he's cutting through the sexist and racist culture that he's in. Now, probably, I don't know what percentage of India converts to Buddhism at that point, but I would think it was a small percentage, even though he's got the ears of several kings and queens and um, probably the majority is still Hindu. And not only are they Hindu, they're a bit pissed at him because he's this sort of atheist psychologist who's saying, you don't need religion. You just, you know, everything you need's already in here. Don't worry about the worshiping. Don't worry about going to church, the temple. Fuck those fake gurus. You are the guru, your own teacher. Here's how to wake up from within you. All of that was a detour from my point, which was at some point, he meets this character that's referred to as Angulimala. And Angulimala is the archetype of the most unworthy person possible. 
Angulimala is a murderer. He's a serial killer. He uh, has, uh, there's a backstory and you know, a lot of that's a little myth archetype, but the backstory on Angulimala was that he was a um, serious yogi. He was like a serious Hindu spiritual guy, but um, his guru became jealous of his relationship with the guru's wife. The guru's wife was paying Angulimala a little too much attention. So Anguli, uh, so the guru told Angulimala, you know, we're Kali worshipers. Kali is the god of death. And I, I have this new spiritual practice for you. I want you to go and murder 108 people in the name of Kali. You know, we worship, we sacrifice animals to her. I want you to sacrifice some human beings. And he, you know, goes like, well, Guru's telling me to do so, you know, talk about blind faith. <laughs> He's like, all right, Guru G, I'm going to go murder some people as my spiritual practice. So he goes out and he starts killing people. And the guru says, every person you kill in order to prove to me you've murdered them, cut off their finger. And then bring me back 108 fingers. So Anguli means finger and Mala is necklace, you know, like the beads that people use that we use to count our uh, mantras. So he says, I want you to make a, 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 a necklace of 108 fingers and bring it back to me when you're done. You know, thinking that like he'll get killed, he'll get arrested, just basically trying to get rid of the guy or to create such negative karma for the guy that he won't be so uh, handsome or attractive to the, to the dude's wife. This is how the story goes. So he goes out and Gulimala kills and kills and kills. And, um, and the way that the kind of mystical story goes is that the more he kills, the more kind of almost superpowers he gets. And he gets to this place where he has this, these powers where he can run so fast that nobody can escape him. He's like the fastest, you know, like he's going to just run you down and fucking tackle you and kill you and cut your finger off. And he's towards the end, he's killed 105 people, 106, 107. He needs to kill one more person to, to complete his mala, 108 he needs. And right around that time, the Buddha is in the vicinity and all of these, you know, the kind of local village people and the king's army comes out and they say, hey, Buddha, like careful around here, don't go that way because that fucking finger bandit dude and Gulimala's over there and you know, you're a precious resource to us. You're teaching us awakening. Don't go over there. We don't, we don't want you to get killed. But the Buddha uses some, you know, one of the stories is uses some like omnipotent power. Now I'm skeptical of these exaggerated Buddhist stories where like the Buddha reads in Gulimala's mind. And he realizes that Angulimala is going to go and kill his own mother. He says, the last finger I will take will be from mom. And the Buddha um, knows that. And, you know, regardless of who he's going to kill, he says, I just have to, I've got to talk to this guy. 
I gotta see if I can talk some sense into this. This guy has lost his mind. He's killing all these people. And so he walks right into the vicinity, right into the neighborhood, right into the woods where Angulimala is, is known to be held up. And Angulimala sees him kind of from a, a hilltop and starts running down to catch the Buddha. And the Buddha's alone. He says, I'm going alone. Nobody follow me. And he's just doing his, you know, Buddha-like walking meditation, you know, picture Thich Nhat Hanh walking slowly. The Buddha's just walking mindfully, right foot, left foot. <laughs> and Angulimala closes the gap. And at some point, he's some distance away from the Buddha. And he's running as fast as he can. And the Buddha's walking slowly, but he can't close the gap. And he, you know, and this, this is one of those magical stories. And finally, he just screams at the Buddha and he says, stop. And the Buddha slowly, majestically turns around. And he says, uh, Angulimala, I stopped a long time ago. I stopped reacting. I stopped listening to fake gurus. <laughs> I stopped seeking happiness outside of myself a long time ago. I stopped. I stopped clinging. I stopped hating. I stopped causing harm intentionally to other living beings. And, he, and when are you going to stop? You've caused so much harm to yourself, to all of these beings, these lives you've taken. When are you going to stop? And then there's that moment of clarity <laughs> the light bulb goes on and Angulimala breaks down and sees the wrong path that he's been on and he's in the presence of an awakened being and he remembers he said i started this whole thing because i wanted to be an awakened being and my teacher gave me the worst fucking instructions <laughs> sent me down the wrong path this dead end of violence, of murder. And he converts. And he says, you know, please, Buddha, I take refuge. Please take me as a student. Uh, I will do anything. Can someone like me get free? Can someone like me know liberation? Can I become an arahant, an awakened being? And the Buddha says, yes, it's possible. In this lifetime, you can free yourself. You can purify all of the karma from all of the murder, from all of the confusion, all of the ignorance of your life. He says, if you're willing to follow this Four Noble Truths, these, this Eightfold Path, and to you know, come and live as a monastic with me, and I will show you how to train your mind, how to train your mind. I'll show you how to forgive yourself. And I'll show you how to, to wake up in this lifetime. And as the story goes, Angulimala becomes a monk and is able to attain nirvana, awakening, by the end of that incarnation, by the end of that life. Now, this is one of those stories that 
again, and I've already said it a little bit, but who knows if it's factual, it doesn't matter. The point is, the teaching here is that whether you're a trust fund Buddha <laughs> or a prison Buddha, you can become an awakened being. Now, I'm using the traditional Buddhist language about awakening and nirvana. Maybe that is true. Uh, I'd like to think it's true. I'm also quite happy if it's not totally true and this whole uh, liber, you know, totally enlightened beings is a little bit exaggerated. And that uh, even if it only means that we get to decrease our suffering a lot, <laughs> that it, you know, doesn't mean that you never have a, a slip up of, of some form of suffering again, but you just make a ton of progress and develop a ton of compassion, less and less attachment. I'm, I don't know, maybe it's all of my, uh, skepticism and my recovery, you know, this sort of progress, not perfection. Buddhism does offer a perfection model. Uh, I am quite personally quite happy with the progress that happens when we consistently apply the meditation practice, the principles, uh, the renunciation, when we really live in this way, my direct experience shows me this really works to create more happiness and less suffering. Now, is there some final liberation that's possible? I'd like to think so. Uh, you know, I can get a little skeptical since I uh, have met a lot of people that have been practicing, you know, a long, long time and they don't seem to be fully liberated. Uh, most of my teachers and uh, even, you know, the monks and nuns that I've met traveling in Asia, uh, I've met some really wonderfully kind, liberated people, but even someone like the Dalai Lama who says, I'm not enlightened, or Thich Nhat Hanh who admits, I'm not fully liberated. So these teachers, these the highest teachers who've really dedicated, who say, I'm not there yet, gives me some question about like, well, where's there? Personally, I don't know where you guys land, but personally, not that important. And even if nirvana is, uh, you know, kind of meaning that you will become happier and happier and suffer less and less, fine with me. That's good enough. That's great. I would, I'm, I'm still in, <laughs> still completely in. I mean, does it give you any less confidence? Like what if, what if I had started by saying all living beings have the power and the potential to drastically decrease the amount of suffering they experience in this lifetime rather than this religious to completely end. <laughs> Maybe it is end. Maybe it's drastically decreased.
So this issue around worthiness and these traditional images of doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done. You can get free. You can purify your karma. Most of us are, are aware of that image of uh, the Buddha just before awakening where he says, I'm attacked by Mara. And Mara is the part of the mind that is the five hindrances, the part of the mind that is craving for pleasure and you know, lusting, the part of the mind that is hatred and resentment, the part of the mind that is lazy and slothful, the part of the mind that is restless and worried. He said, and the part of the mind that doubts our own worth, our own ability. So Mara in the traditional imagery attacks with, uh, with lustful images. The Buddha is sitting there on the verge of enlightenment, thinking about porn. The mind just thinking about sex. You'd be happier if you were having sex. What kind of sex can draw you away from this meditation? <laughs> what can I distract you with? Your mind ever do that to you? <laughs> I know it does. And then the mind attacking, Mara attacking with violence, weapons, arrows, spears, AK-47s. The Buddha meeting all of it with compassion, saying like, nope, the pain, the violence, I meet it with forgiveness, I meet it with compassion, I've developed that skill, that ability. And lastly, and it said Mara's strongest weapon is that part of the human mind that doubts our own capacity, our own ability. And, 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 he, and I think that this is important because if you have some self-doubt, some low self-esteem, some feelings of unworthiness, so did the Buddha up to the moment of his enlightenment. He says, I was sitting there and my mind said to me, who the fuck do you think you are? Why do you think you're worthy of happiness? in this world where everyone is suffering, in this real world of greed and hatred and delusion and self-centered ignorance, you think you're just gonna meditate your way past all of humanity? You think you're special? You think you're more worthy than everyone else? When the Buddha touches the earth, in his reply to his own mind. He just grounds himself and says, I'm here touching the earth. And because, and you know, there's different meaning assigned to that. But the one that I like the best is he just says, I'm part of this world and I'm not more worthy. I'm not less worthy. I'm just part of these four elements. I'm just part of this interconnected web of existence. And what I've found out is that that part of the mind is ignorance and that the truth is 
we are all worthy. We are all able. We have all uh, the ability to get free. All living beings on this earth have Buddha nature, have the potential to awaken in this lifetime, to drastically reduce the amount of suffering <laughs> or to get free, whatever we want to call it. I hope that these teachings are helpful to you. I offer them uh, in an open spirit of your own reflection for your own contemplation. And I guess a big part of what I wanna drive home and ask you to reflect on is this, um, why the fuck do we continue to believe our own minds? Like, <laughs> don't we have enough evidence yet that our minds are not the most trustworthy source of information about whether you're worthy, whether you're able? And why do we take it so personal? Without meditation, everyone's walking around taking it so fucking personal which is why I'm so glad that we're a community of meditators because the more you turn towards your mind, the more you see there's some wisdom in here and there's lots of ignorance in here. There's some uh, intelligence and some insight potentials in my mind. And my mind constantly has views and opinions that are not in line with reality, such as I'm unworthy or unable. It's always a lie. But the human mind has a tendency to lie to itself. <laughs> and so we have to wake up to that as the Buddha did and just see, oh, shit, I'm just part of this world. I'm not special. I'm not more worthy. I'm not less worthy. It's just part of this human ability, potential, capacity. Those are my thoughts. What are yours? Questions, comments, reflections. If you'd like to ask a question, you can um, raise your hand by going into the participants tab. And um, there's a little blue hand that you can raise at the bottom there or on your screen. Um, if you'd like to ask something, uh, out loud, or you can put questions in the chat if you'd like. I got one here. It says, if we rid ourselves of or substantially quell suffering, don't we lose an important component to what inspires us to be moral? Without a sense of suffering, how do we differenti differentiate between what is right and what is wrong? For example, example arguably, Sociopaths don't suffer. Your thoughts? I'll share my thoughts. I am clearly not enlightened, <laughs> so I can't speak from direct experience. What I can uh, share is 
my understanding of the Buddha's teaching, where he says, you know, now that I'm free, all that now that I'm completely free from suffering, all that remains is compassion for all living beings. And since I have compassion for all living beings, I would never intentionally do anything to ca cause harm to another living being. So that that piece around the um, how'd you put it, the moral. Uh, you know, right and wrong. If we're, if compassion is our guiding principle, then we're going to do our best to not cause harm with the acceptance that, um, you know, even someone like the Buddha was uh, somewhat consistently uh, offending people as he was speaking out against their racist, sexist, you know, he was a very political um, in so in so many ways, and uh, speaking out against people's belief in God and you know their delusional uh, faith-based ideas around religion. So you know he was a controversial person, and uh, he was probably hurting a lot of people's feelings <laughs> by saying like, "God, what you guys believe is so delusional." <laughs> um, here's the truth, you know, as as he's experienced it. Um, so he wasn't. Um, afraid of conflict. But if all that remains is compassion and loving kindness and appreciative joy and equanimity, those four qualities of wisdom, heart, heartfulness, um, create a, a moral, a, a, um, a wise compass for how we go through the world and we know directly right from wrong. Uh, is it coming from, you know, and this is in the um, Eightfold Path, a second factor is what is my intention here? Am I coming from a wholesome place, a place of non-harming, a place of non-greed, a place of non-self-centeredness? And awakening leads us to living our life from that, uh, those kind of wise intentions. Sociopaths, um, are, are not, not Buddhas. Uh, that's, you know, that's like a, a missing, some wires crossed. And, and, and they're, you know, all of the harm that they're causing may have all of the karma for it. And they're actually suffering quite a bit, knowingly or unknowingly. Shana asked, could I elaborate on karmic cleansing? karmic purification or cleansing. Um, simply put, all of our intentional, uh, you know, harmful actions uh, create a, a um, karmic debt, a karmic fruit, which is a negative one, all of the harmful uh, ones. And then every non-harmful, positive, wholesome, uh, action purifies some of that negative. And so maybe my father used to talk about this and it, it's a simple way to understand it, even if it's not completely correct. He said, think of karma savings and loan and that every single action is either a deposit or a withdrawal. Positive actions, in the karmic bank, <laughs> deposit, deposit, deposit. Negative actions, withdrawal, withdrawal, withdrawal. So look, what I was talking about earlier, like when you come to the path, 
how overdrawn are we? <laughs> how in debt are we at the time that we finally get to the cushion? And that's how much, you know, purification, balancing of the karmic checkbook we have to do just to get even. And then we want to keep going and have, you know, an abundance of good karma uh, to carry us through our incarnation. I hope that makes sense. Um, somebody's just asking if the motivation is clean slash good karma, does that make it not clean? Uh, the answer is no, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what your motivation is. It's okay to be motivated by being good. Um, it doesn't have to be selflessly good. Um, if you're giving, if you're being kind, if you're even with some self-concern, it's still good karma. Linda Lee, jump in. Thanks. Um, I have a question regarding, uh, you know, good karma in that practically uh, I, my backpack with uh, all my percussion instruments was stolen out of my car a couple days ago. And I walked around my neighborhood and actually found my backpack at the home, at the beach encampment where a bunch of the homeless guys live. So I went and I got my backpack back and I didn't get my instruments back, but I kind of felt like I, at one point I was just, I was devastated when I found my backpack gone just because it was my instruments. And then there was a part of me that was like, uh, very obviously very, I felt very heartbroken and I felt very attached. And so there was a point where I could have just like, obviously I couldn't let it go. Obviously I was so attached that I am going around looking for my backpack and finding it, but not finding the bells and the shakers and the rattles. Um, still feeling very disappointed, but I also felt like, you know what, if I want those things back, I have to go ask for them. And I, I already kind of knew who had them. And even though, was it so wise for me to go over and confront, but in a very personable way, like, dude, you took my shit. Why did you do that? Give it back to me. It's not yours. Those are my bells. Those are my instruments. And, you know, he was just like, he kind of was like, oh yeah, well, this other homeless guy found the bag and gave it to him and it, the instruments weren't in there. Talked to this other guy. He might know where they are. So I'm kind of like chasing around these instruments. And at one point I'm just kind of like, okay, when do I let go? Where is wisdom here? I'm like this woman going around, you know, putting myself in camps where I'm not really necessarily maybe welcome, but at the same time, being respectful too. 
uh, of that, of, of this guy, Josh, who, you know, so anyway, any, any thoughts on that around like letting go or is that, is that, where's the wisdom in there? Is there, cause that's what I'm hoping for. I, um, here's my thoughts. My thoughts mm -hmm. is, uh, there is some line between letting go and, uh, non-attachment and uh, irresponsibility um you know like if you can do you know it, it's also it's like our relationship to pain our relationship to loss if you can do something about it do it mm -hmm. <laughs> right if, if the pain is avoidable often it's the right thing to do to avoid it right like if the loss is avoidable and you can retrieve what has been lost It'd be irresponsible not to try on some level or another. But ultimately, if you can't retrieve what has been lost, you have to let it go and not suffer about it. And if you can't avoid the pain, then compassion is the only uh, wise relationship. But certainly Buddhism isn't saying be irresponsible and just don't ever try. Or um, sometimes you need to uh, fight for what's right. You don't want to be so non-attached uh that you're not um speaking up when you know so on some level i think like how fucking cool that you were able to go back and be like hey give me my shit and also i did have a feeling as i'm sure many people listening did of like ooh, like that's dangerous yeah and and you know be be a little bit more attached to your own safety <laughs> You know? Yeah, but at the it, same time, it's like he's a human too. Yeah, he's yeah. a man, and why wouldn't I meet him person to person? Because essentially, it's just one dude who took my shit, and I don't know. Like, you know, I'm not going to question you why you took it. I know you take stuff. You take everybody's stuff, but you took my my stuff, and I want it back. Yeah. Well, so, I'm glad. I'm glad you didn't get hurt. And it sounds like you maybe knew that uh, it was safe enough to confront this guy and he wasn't going to physically hurt you. Um, but, you know, there, we do, you know, so much of the Dharma is developing discernment. Yeah. You know, about what, when it is time to let go and when it is time to confront and when it is time to walk away and when it is time to, uh, you know, hold your ground and all of that stuff. So... Uh, we're always grappling with that balance between non-attachment and responsibility or, or accountability. Hope that's helpful. Thank you. Welcome. Michael, jump in. Last one, I think. Thanks, Noah. And the whole talk really resonated with me tonight. So thank you. And, you know, I, I've been doing this for close to a year now when I started you talk about unworthiness I actually read a book um, by Tara Brock uh, when I had first started uh, Radical Acceptance and there was a chapter called The Trance of Unworthiness and I grew up Catholic and um, I beat myself up like unbelievably when I came into this and um, when I came into refuge recovery and um just relentlessly beat myself up and 
I think the beauty of the Dharma, just reflecting the, 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 beauty, the beauty of the Dharma was I could put the bat down and have self-compassion and kindness towards myself. When I first heard that, and I've said this a couple of times, it was so counterintuitive. I thought it was so hippie and so lofty and so like idealistic and not like relevant or pertinent or like just, I like rebelled against it. Like, well, recoiled might be the more proper word. And I, 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 I started doing it and I've continued to do it. And now I, with each passing day incrementally, like as time's gone on, like I see the benefit in it. And I see that it's created space inside. And I've seen that, like, like, and you, and you were getting at this tonight, we are worthy of this. We can do this. Like, we can reduce suffering. And it is better. It's way better than what I brought to the fucking front door. Way by leaps and bounds. It's, it's way better when I have that spaciousness and I get out of me, my eye making and becoming and uh, getting caught in the stories of mental proliferations and just sit in that kind of awareness and consciousness and have that space and just be kind to myself. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable. And like, I, I love what you said about discernment too, about knowing when to be non-reactive and know when to stand your ground or even like getting into the process of amends and things like that. Like, Knowing when it's right and in, in, in letting letting the moment present itself, you know. Um, so the talk was really really good tonight, and um, I'm, I'm reading a book by Joseph Goldstein, Mindfulness, and you talk about like, you know, I'm at the point where they're talking about the body and fire, air, um, water, earth, like, and just the talk kind of like intersects with where I'm at in the book when you brought that up. So I'm just grateful for the, for the uh, talk tonight. Thank you. Thanks, man. Good to see you. Uh, last comment here, uh, going on this idea of unworthiness. If you knew someone was struggling with their fundamental right to exist, take up space, is there any specific type of grounding meditation you would offer them? Um, my first thought is loving kindness as meta practice, you know, as a kind of, oh, it's one of the core practices that will build a sense of uh, self-worth and self-esteem. The more that we repeat over and over to ourselves, may I be happy, may I be at ease. And maybe you uh, even modify it some for people who are really struggling with that is to some kind of like, may I feel worthy of being happy. May I feel worthy of being at ease, of just training the mind, creating neural pathways towards, towards kindness. Um, I hope that's helpful. Uh, I think that's good enough for tonight. Good to see everybody. Rachel has posted the link to the donation page. Please um, try to be generous if you can give a five, 10, 15, $20 donation for the drop in class. Uh, when we come in person, we encourage a 15 to $20 donation. I know, um, zoom, uh, doesn't feel like quite the same as coming in person, but we have the same 
overhead at the meditation center, even though I'm at home and the meditation center is closed, we're still paying rent and salaries. And um, so please uh, be generous if you can um, donate, please donate. And it's the end of the year, uh, remember that all of your donations are tax deductible. If that's helpful to you in any way, you can uh, write off some of your donations or all of your donations to us. Um, and if you're not already a monthly supporter, please consider a part of that link takes you to uh, the, uh, the links for monthly subscription uh, of just saying, hey, I'll give, I think there's choices. You can give anything you want, but 25, 50, $100 a month just to support the organization. Deeply appreciate it if you can do that. Um, I see that there's also a link for upcoming retreats, which is this uh, day long, the day after Christmas, uh, December 26th, a 12 hour practice day, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. that um, Rachel and Ward and Jason and myself, is it just us four? Yes, us four are going to be um, holding space and each taking different parts of the day. Uh, I'll be doing the Dharma talk at, in the evening, 7 p.m., I think, on the 26th. Uh, but come and practice all day. Come and sit in the morning. You know, even if you have to do some other stuff, if you can, make the whole day, day after Christmas, ditch your family, your, you know, your... Um, your, uh, you know, all of your duties to show up for the holidays are done. Take a day for your own practice and, um, you know, sit in front of your computer and meditate with us, sitting and walking practice and listening to Dharma talks. And so there's a link there to that. Uh, and uh, please join us if you care to. Um, most likely I'll see you next week. I got to uh, I'm going to be out of town and hopefully I'll have good enough um, Wi-Fi on my uh, trip to be able to do class. But just in case I don't, I'm going to have a backup. So there will definitely be class next week and almost surely it will be me, but maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in tonight. Many good, uh, good merit, good karma that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all beings. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.